Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the Premier League team of the decade. Now, these type of exercises are far more commonly used in baseball surrounding Hall of Fame arguments. I think the classic example was Jack Morris, who won 254 games and was a bulldog kind of ace leader of a pitching staff. He was most famous for, you know, performing at his best in, in the postseason, in the playoffs. You know, the type of person that would pitch nine, ten innings and really just put the team on his back. Now, his overall candidacy was for the Hall of Fame was not great. He was Hall of Very Good, not Hall of Fame. But his candidacy ended up he ended up being selected and a lot of it was older voters who were using traditional you know, statistics. So how many wins, how many innings, complete games. And one of the sort of key tenets of that argument was the, that he was the pitcher of the 1980s. And really it showed you the arbitrariness of these type of exercises. In the sense that simply by quirk of fate that he, you know, career started in the late you know, 70s, and by the time it hit sort of 1980, that was when he was at his peak over those sort of six, seven, eight, nine years. Whereby most of the other pitchers of that era who were great tended to be either a little bit later, in other words, breaking through in the mid 80s, or, you know, having several great years in the late 70s. So, in other words, it wasn't a particularly strong element, it was far more emotional then it was you know a rational decision based on you know new analytics in other words all of these fantastic new statistics that are used by these sort of younger parts of the hall of fame you know votership and that sort of allowed a whole new understanding you know and reevaluation of these players careers and one that generally just said of Jack Morris that he was Hall of Very Good rather than Hall of Fame. So for me, with these type of exercises, it comes down to you know, what rules you use to select and how faithful you are to them. So for me, it's using 11 players to tell the story of the last decade in the Premier League. So for me, when I was looking at Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville selections for Team of the Decade on Monday Night Football, there was no egregiously bad choices. But I think the thing that interested me was that both of them selected Cesar Aspilicueta and Pablo Zabaleta at fullbacks. Now, Zabaleta was you know, a really good fullback. You know, he had a you know, good defensively, good going forward, covered a lot of ground, and was, you know, really good for Man City for, you know, a number of years. You know, last couple of years at Man City he dropped off, he's then gone to West Ham and, you know, simply been just about probably league average, maybe a little bit below league average. He's in the twilight years of his career. He's now just a solid veteran backup more than anything else. And with Aspil Equator, he's a you know a solid fullback, pretty decent centre half, and but his you know his overriding skill set has been consistency. You know, he's not brilliant going forward, he'll chip him with the odd goal, the odd assist, and defensively he was pretty strong, but it it's not an overwhelming 
overwhelming case. For me, I, if you only have 11 players to explain the decade and tell the story of the decade, I wouldn't go with you know, Pablo Zabaleta and Cesar Aspilicueta to, to tell that story. So for me, I've, I've gone with a, a back three. Now, I, obviously the natural question is, why no fullbacks? And I nearly put Trent Alexander-Arnold in. Although he's only been playing sort of two, three years, and so therefore hasn't really covered a huge amount of the decade, what his performances have done is fundamentally altered our perceptions of what a fullback can do. In other words, this is a fullback that can get 15, 20 assists a season, four, five, six plus goals. I mean, that's you know the the production of a of a playmaker at fullback and the importance in terms of the, the amount of ground that he covers and there's a sort of huge argument as to whether you know he should transition from you know fullback into midfield to see exactly how far his talent can go or that actually if you were to move him back into midfield he would merely become a solid attacking midfield player whereby he is an exceptional fullback at this point from an attacking standpoint and you know, you could possibly argue that, you know, at left back, Danny Rose, when he was at his peak, was, you know, with Spurs, you know, sort of two, three, four years ago, was a better player than, you know, Aspilicueta, at least going forward. But obviously, he's dropped off due to injuries, and there was always a question mark over his crossing. There wasn't quite the end product. In other words, he would, you know, beat players, he would cover a lot of ground, but. In the end, there wasn't the crosses or the assists or the goals. You know, we've always, you know, there's always been teams that had, you know, fast attacking fullbacks. You know, Cafu, Roberto Carlos, Paul Parker, and with Carl Walker, who was you know Zabaleta's replacement at Man City, they were great players, but they were you know. Even from an attacking standpoint, you know, Carl Walker wasn't, you know, isn't a great goal scorer. You know, he's, you know, always he's got a few assists for Spurs, a few more for Man City, but, but in terms of, in terms of relative impact, the three centre halves I've chosen are, are better, you know, have better cases. So, you know, starting off with Jan Vertonghen. He's one of the you know, main players in terms of his versatility. You know, he's played in a back three, he's played in a back four, he can play at left back, he's played at left wing back. Some of his best performances for Spurs have been at full back. And one of you know, probably his greatest performance was playing left wing back against Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League. And so his was a case primarily on he shows the changing tactics where you've got you know the rise of the ball playing centre half you know not just some you know like you know old school Rio Ferdinand who could pass the ball a bit this is players who are taking the ball out from the back you know getting involved in the attacks you've got the you know players like Jan Vertonghen really showed you the changes that went in how you know defenders have been used and in the way how the Balls are being retained. And it's players like that that have predicated the rise of, you know, 
the overlapping centre halves that you know Sheffield United have used so successfully this season and last season in getting promoted. And it's the if you look at it, Vertonghen's been fantastic at international level, often playing you know left back and centre half for Belgium, and you know really their golden generation. I mean, getting to semi-finals, getting to quarter-finals at major international tournaments. And really, Vertonghen has been you know, exceptional for six, seven, eight years of the decade. Now, my other two centre-halves were Vincent Company and John Terry. Now, Vincent Company's case is, you know, he was a huge leader and a, a pillar of the Man City teams. Even, you know, when he retired at the end of last season... It was him that they were relying on. Even if he wasn't at his peak in terms of his footballing ability, there was always you know various injury problems. But that goal he scored against Leicester, where he smashed it in from twenty five yards out, you know, top corner, last few minutes of a game they were struggling, a game they really had to win to get the title. His legacy at Man City is so vital from being there at the beginning when you know, the Abu Dhabi took over and showed the importance of you know, leadership. And finally, I went with John Terry. Now, I think it's interesting that Terry wasn't selected in either of the you know, two Monday Night Football experts team of the decade. And it, with these things, there's always an element of recency bias. And it's unsurprising that Virgil van Dijk was selected in both. Now, Virgil van Dijk has been, over the last two years, fantastic for Liverpool. You know, before they got, before he arrived at the club, they weren't particularly strong defensively. There was always a sense that the back door was somewhat open. And he's been a major part of that. But at the same time, for me, the success John Terry had over multiple years of this decade, you know, in terms of you know winning the Champions League, winning the Europa League, winning multiple league titles, in the sense that his goals and the assists that he was able to produce, his passing, I think all of that created a stronger, better track record. So for company and for Terry, it's their leadership, it's the amount of trophies that they've won, whereby I think Virgil gets marked down a little bit in my mind with the sense that he's part of an excellent team. You know, you've got Robertson, you've got Trent Alexander-Arnold, you've got Allison, you've got Fabinho. While he's been a huge part of that success... You know, he, he's simply been... You know, conventionally excellent. You know, he plays in a back four. Whereby, when you're looking at Vertonghen, his versatility and his role in the changing of the parameters of you know what centre halves were able to do, meant that he hadn't been so excellent that you could drop either Terry or Company. Now that's not to say that. <laughs> He's not been impressive, but I think if you look at the years that he's had at Southampton, they never broke through into you know Europe. They never quite got to the next level. They didn't win a trophy, and and I don't think you could argue that 
Van Dyke has been so much better than John Terry was at the start of the decade. In terms of every year he'd put up, you know, 35 plus games, you know, six goals, and was part of a consistent winning mantra at Chelsea. I mean, even in his last season, you know, he only played, I think, 18 starts, six sub-appearances, but he was still, you know, contributing to a team that, you know, steamrolled to the title. For goalkeeper, I think this is going to be the most controversial of my choices. Uh, and I've gone with Kasper Schmeichel. Now, I think the consensus is that, you know, David De Gea was the you know, goalkeeper of, of the decade. And for me, I think his case would have to be overwhelming. And a 35% clean sheet, you know, percentage... It's identical to Hugo Lloris, who has been much more successful at international level. He's been France captain, he's gone to a European Championships final, he's a World Cup winner. Whereby, you know, De Gea's only got 41 caps for Spain, he's had a he had a poor World Cup, and was dropped and has been dropped by Spain. And last season for you know periods of time. De Gea wasn't particularly impressive. He made quite a few sort of very rudimentary errors and was pretty much on the verge of, of getting dropped. And I think w- the reason he wasn't dropped is at this point he's Manchester United's probably most consistent player. He's probably not the most famous, you'd probably argue, that Paul Pogba. But in terms of, really, he's the last link to the Ferguson years and the Ferguson winning. He's, you know, played in goal in the last championship season for Manchester United. And that really they couldn't drop him almost from a a narrative perspective. And in the end, I got the feeling that they just kept on playing him on the hopes that he would eventually get back to form, which to an extent he has done this season, but you know, with Kasper Michael, he was pivotal in their league title winning season, in a way that De Gea wasn't as important to United when they won the title. That was his second season in English football, and really the, those first two seasons, you could see the talent was there, but he was obviously very young, he was getting used to the Premier League, and at first his physique was probably a little bit too slight for the physicality that was in the game but you could see the talent was there and eventually year on year he got better and better but he only played 28 games in that title winning season you know 10 other appearances were made by the backup and it's only really been the last sort of four or five years that De Gea was you know became more integral to Manchester United he is a brilliant shot stopper But what I would say is is that you know he's not a fantastic kicking, especially compared with you know Ederson and Allison, who I think have you know surpassed him. Now I've dropped you know Larissa has lost some marks really because he's in the sort of gentle decline phase of his career. He's still making fantastic you know, saves, but you know the last sort of <coughs> excuse me last twelve months you've seen mistakes in terms of the. The most high-profile one, which was the World Cup final, 
mistake he made earlier in the season at Southampton. And with those ones, it was trying to do too much. So in other words, the mistake he made against Southampton where you know, he was trying to do a Cruyff turn in his own six-yard box was him trying to do too much. You know, and the mistake he made against Brighton, which ended up, you know, dislocating his elbow, was was a a ball and a cross that he could have just tapped over the bar and gone out for a corner. But obviously at the time Spurs were under pressure, they wanted this you know, they needed a result and because they'd been battered by by you know, Bayern Munich in the week. And it was the first couple of minutes, and it was just that jitteriness that he didn't want to concede a corner because that could then put them under pressure. But in the end, he, you know, the end product was that he's you know lying in the back of the net with a you know dislocated elbow, and Brighton have scored. So with Casper Schmeichel, what you'd have to say over the last you know six seven years is the consistency. You know, there, there's been no major drop-offs in form. You know, his leadership in terms of being captain of Denmark and leading them you know, to qualifying for you know, the World Cup, the European Championship, and you know, being a, a key player in that. You know, he's made some fantastic saves for you know, Denmark and again, getting out, not just qualifying for you know, major tournaments, but getting to the you know, latter stages. And for me, it's a question of perception. In other words, when David De Gea signed, it was for 18, 19, 20 million pounds for a teenage goalkeeper from Spain. That was, that was a major signing, and there was a major risk, but at the time, obviously Spain were you know, dominant at international level. And you know, it was a big money signing you know, for, for England's biggest football club. And eventually he's become you know, very successful. When compared to Schmeichel, who was you know, the son of Peter, who'd been such a, a pivotal, brilliant player, you know, a foundational player for Manchester United, there's, I suppose, the viewpoint that he was never, you know, that, that sons are never as good as their fathers. In other words, in terms of you know famous players, so you've got you know Jordi Cruyff in comparison with you know Johan Cruyff, you know Paul Dalglish in comparison with Kenny Dalglish. So because Casper Schmeichel, you know, played for you know Notts County when they were taken over by, take well, when Sven was director of football and you know, the club almost collapsed in you know, complete acrimony with you know sort of Campbell, you know playing his one and only game at a League 2 level. But because Schmeichel was from Denmark, or a less heralded na- you know, footballing nation in comparison with Spain, that you know he hadn't been a big money signing for Leicester, you know, that Leicester were unfashionable, they were a newly promoted team, they almost got relegated their first season. So, you know, we see more Manchester United games. We have this view that you know De Gea was world class, and yet, in comparison, actually you know Schmeichel's played for a, a less lesser team, obviously, but you know he's won a league title. You know when they had their run in the Champions League to the quarterfinal, he played a, a huge role in that. You know his clean sheet you know, percentage 
is 30% to De Gea's 35%. And if you think of how many years that Leicester have been mid-table in comparison with United, who were you know, finishing second, you know, they've won a League Cup, an FA Cup, a Europa League trophy, I don't see De Gea's you know, 5% improvement in clean sheet you know, percentage to be that overwhelming. I think Schmeichel's are better with his feet, And I think it's a more interesting way of explaining the story of the Premier League. In terms, you know, I wouldn't put Jamie Vardy in this team. I think Harry Kane's been better. I think Sergio Aguero would have a better case. But it has shown you, you know, the signing of you know, Schmeichel, that actually, you know, the lower leagues you know, have so much talent that is sometimes, I think, underutilised. And that it takes longer for players who've gone up through the leagues to be respected. If you look at you know Sheffield United this season, you know how many games did it take before people started to, you know, stand up and take notice that this was a really good team, that you know the football that they were playing was you know really exceptional. When they went to, you know, play Tottenham early in the season, I saw them and it was just refreshing to see. You know how well trained they were. How you know tactically you know, organized they were at the back. How you know I've seen plenty of you know promoted teams come up and you know decide that they're just going to you know maintain their attacking ethos from the championship. So I remember a few years ago when um, West Brom first came up, they played some quite lovely stuff, but it was kind of forlorn. It was slightly hopeless in that they weren't tight enough at the back and they weren't efficient enough up front. So in other words, they just played just well enough to lose 2-1 or 3-1 and they they didn't stay up. And I think Norwich this year have shown to you know a certain extent that that same quality. In other words, when they win, you know, as in when they beat, you know, Man City earlier in the year, it was very impressive, but more often than not there's just not enough there for them to actually get results on a regular basis. So they might win six or seven games this season, but there will be 20 that they will lose you know, fairly, you know, fairly well battered because there's not enough you know, quality, there's not enough organisation and coaching to allow them to you know, actually get consistent results, whereby... Probably with slightly less talent, but actually with more coaching and more tactical acumen, Sheffield United have got much better results and are much more likely not just to you know survive this season, but to thrive in the next two, three, four seasons. And I think Schmeichel is the best example of that. You know, we have consistently underrated him. In other words, we give David De Gea far too much credit for, you know, being a great shot stopper because he's playing for Manchester United and because there is the consensus that he was one of the best goalkeepers in the world. And yet we consistently underrate Kasper Schmeichel, who's put up pretty much similar numbers for a, you know, 
much more unfashionable team. In other words, we see Manchester United more times on television you know, over the last five, six years than we have Leicester City. We treated Leicester City as a sort of one-off freak result, and yet if you look at this season, you know, they're up there competing for the league with Liverpool. And they played some fantastic stuff, and you know, Cashman Schmeichel's been at the forefront of that. Over the last few years, Schmeichel's been more consistent than Larice. And in my opinion, Larice has a better case than De Gea. Now, personally, I would argue at the moment the best goalkeeper in the Premier League is Allison. I think Ederson is probably second. You know, I would put, you know, at this moment in time, Cashmere Michael third. I think he's you know, probably just the level below what Ederson and Allison at their best can do. But in terms of you know, team of the decade, I think his consistency and his impact at international level is good enough that Ederson and Allison in the last sort of two, three years, I don't think have been that much better to to drop Kasper Michael from the team of the decade. Now my next two selections I think with uh, again with these type of exercises it, it tends to be far more attention is placed on, you know, attacking players. Because they're the people that we, you know we go through the turnstile to see. But if you're telling the story of the Premier League from a tactical standpoint, the double pivot has been a, a key feature of the last 10 years. And the two players who best encapsulate that is N'Golo Kante and Fernandinho. Fernandinho is a key part of you know, Manchester City. Now, while Vincent Company was the was the leader on the you know, on the pitch and off field, I think that rather speaks to, you know, English football's need for leaders. But tactically, you know, Vincent Company was just a decent, a good, you know, a really good centre half. That the tactical leader is Fernandinho. He's the one that makes everything work. In other words, you know, there's no point having all the you know, attacking riches that Man City have if you can't keep it tight at the back. And if you think of how many of their league titles have been you know, decided on you know, the last game of the season, have gone all the way. So in other words, you know, as many as many times as they've battered outfits. Any successful title team will always have those games where you, you know, your attack doesn't quite work. And you might just nick one goal and you need to keep it tight at the back. And he's the one that's done that. So it's not just that he was a great defensive player in terms of stopping. You know, he's fantastic in terms of his positioning, in terms of you know, use of the ball. And you, know, you can see this season with his you know, playing at centre-half, how... You know, that he's done brilliantly well there, considering that he's, you know, n you know for a centre-half, would be undersized. And, you know, obviously in his early 30s, he's not, you know, blindingly fast. But he's been able not just to, you know, do a job there. He's been actually you know, one of City's best players. 
And if you look at, you know, obviously, you, you don't need me to sit there and extol the virtues of N'Golo Kante. You know, the role he's played, you know, at Leicester in being a key point of their, you know, title race and their victory. You know, if you look to see where Danny Drinkwater's career has gone after, you know, Leicester won the title and where N'Golo Kante's career, you know, now that shows you just how good he was. That you know, I I personally I think Danny Drinkwater is a is a decent player who, when put next to Ngolo Kante, became for a short period of time a you know really good player. And that the second that you know he was you know no longer playing with Ngolo Kante, he was never quite the same player. And I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, to an extent last season, but more this season, you've seen the growing attacking presence of, you know, Kante. It's not just that he is, you know, a world-class, you know, defensive midfielder, which he is. He's now contributing all over the field. He's getting goals, he's getting assists, he's making runs. There's so much more that he has to offer and... It's going to be fascinating over the next two or three years to just just to see just how far he can go as a football player. <laughs> so in terms of attacking players, I've gone for you know so the formation I'm playing in this is three two four one. Now, I thought about putting Sergio Aguero uh, above Harry Kane, and for me. I think Aguero is a volume scorer. Now, when you're surrounded, you know, as he has been throughout his City career, by you know, David Silva, Yaya Torre, Raheem Sterling, De Bruyne, you know, Rehab Mahrez, any number of any of those players could be on the list, and a couple of them are. I but if you look at his you know, record in Europe and his record international level I think what you have with Aguero is there hasn't been a banner performance so there's never been a I think probably the best example would be you know Lewandowski scoring four goals for you know Borussia Dortmund you know in the semi-final against you know Jose Mourinho's Real Madrid now at the highest level under the most pressure he was absolutely you know, breathtakingly good. And with Aguero, you don't have that. I think probably the most you know, memorable goal that he's ever scored is the goal against QPR that's won Man City, the league. But I think it's instructive that he's never scored at you know, Anfield. And as much as he's, you know, even if you look at his international numbers, it's you know, 90 plus cats, 41 goals... You know he's only scored twice at you know World Cup. He's only got like you know I think two or three goals in the Copa America, and they weren't particularly you know vital goals. You know I think his most important international goal you'd say would be uh, a goal he scored against Chile in the latter stages of the Copa America, but in the final they lost you know fairly comfortably to Brazil. Whereby I think in choosing Harry Kane, I think he's there's more to his game. You know, I think he could easily play 10. And if you look at what he's done in the Champions League, he's the fastest to 
fastest to 20 goals at international level. He's got a you know, World Cup golden boot. You know, he scored against Croatia, he scored against Spain, Germany. So for me to put Aguero above Harry Kane, Aguero's numbers had to be just, you know, had to be you know, so much better than Harry Kane's. And while he has, you know, scored more goals in the Premier League, it's not by enough of a margin. I think if you look at the players he's been surrounded with, the talent, and, you know, I think that it's to his credit that, you know, he's improved under under Guardiola, who's now a more well-rounded forward. For a lot of years, there wasn't, you know, as much, you know, of a, you know, it wasn't hugely impressive in the amount of ground he covered in terms of, you know, pressing and, you know, tracking back. It wasn't the most creative player, whereby I think with Kane, he's more well-rounded and, you know, he does a lot more work, you know, defensively. And I think at certain times for England, you know, and his goal scoring for England over the last 12 months has been fantastic and he looks like he's getting better, is that... You know, in terms of dropping deep and you know some of the passes against Spain when we won away, you know, and the ability to work, you know, to drop deeper, which has helped, you know, Sancho, Sterling, and Marcus Rashford, shows a shows an ability, you know, a fluidity to his game that I don't think Aguero has ever shown. In other words, Aguero hasn't ever been able to, you know, in his ninety plus caps for. Argentina to have ever really established himself as you know a you know guaranteed starter and obviously you're dealing with Messi but you know they've never particularly gelled as a you know partnership and with all this sort of attacking quality that Argentina has he's you know if you look at the sort of you know, teams he's scoring goals against internationally it's not the cream it's not and again there's no you know, real banner performance that I can sit there and say that you know where he's really made a made a decisive impact at international level. For the four attacking players, you know, for the the two middle positions, David Silva and Yaya Torre were yeah you know, the obvious candidates because they played such a, an integral role. In the growth of Man City, from you know, you know, battling for top four to battling for league titles, and now you know, really aiming to be one of the best teams in Europe, and Torre in terms of getting twenty goals a season from you know centre midfield, gave Man City a legitimacy, and we've seen players get. You know, midfielders get 20 goals a season. You, you saw Gerrard, you had Lampard, but I don't. But the way how Yaya Torre did it was so. was so different from, I think, anything we've really seen before in the Premier League. It, it was generally, you know, thrilling to see a player of such class in, in English football. And with David Silva. There's, there's the versatility 
in that he's you know played several different roles for you know Man City and the ability to you know work under with different managers under different systems and to just be an all-round fantastic playmaker but also a fantastic winger you know he's been a, you know there's a consistency and there's a, a quality that you know, all of the players on this list have the ability to make other players better and i think none epitomizes that you know as much as david silva has for the For the length of this decade, and Eden Hazard, you know, was a natural choice. I, you know, he was for, <clears throat> for so long. He was the the center point of Chelsea. When Eden Hazard did well, Chelsea did well. I think he was the you know, most important player with regards to the transition from the first you know great Chelsea team, you know, with. Lampard, Drogba, Terry, Czech, to a new Chelsea where where you had you know Courtois, N'Golo Kante, and you know with all of the machinations of you know how many managers he had and a lot of the you know, controversies, he gave Chelsea goals, he gave them assists. Was a huge part of you know the successes of different managers. So Mourinho's success when you know winning the league and cup with you know, Antonio Conte, and, and even you know winning the Europa League and finishing third under under Maurizio Sarri. In other words, no matter what system you used, you would always find a way to ha- put in Hazard at the forefront of it. And for my final selection. I was really left with a choice between Luis Suarez or Gareth Bale. With Gareth Bale, the, the actual numbers itself don't look particularly... They don't stand out. They don't you know, pop off the page. But he was a... You know, as when he was playing as a left winger, he was a wonderfully, wonderfully thrilling individual footballer. When he morphed into kind of a, a all-compassing sort of you know attacking number 10 now, again he was a, a, a you know, force of nature in that final season at Spurs where he scored 20 plus goals and he was the heart of everything that you know, was good about Spurs that season it was not a brilliant you know one through 11 Tottenham team you know whenever we whenever Tottenham needed a last minute goal it just felt as if Gareth Bale would just on demand do something fantastic but what I would say is is that with Suarez he made the players around him better in a way that Gareth Bale never did in other words Gareth Bale was probably one of the world's best individual football players you know all of the great moments of Gareth Bale's footballing career have been almost solo efforts. That the the goal he scored in the Copa del Rey final against Barcelona, where he just single-handedly annihilated the Barcelona defence. You know, the hat trick at the San Siro, you know, taxi for Mycon. They, for the most part, were individual moments rather than 
a collective, which was what Suarez did with Raheem Sterling, with Daniel Sturridge, with Coutinho, with Jordan Henderson and Gerrard in that year where they almost won the title. You know, 31 goals from 33 appearances. And Suarez plays such an important role in Liverpool's bid to you know get back to relevance. If you look at this, there's three Chelsea players, there's three Man City players, two Spurs, two Leicester and one Liverpool. And I think that neatly sums up the decade. When Suarez leaves, he's you know partly replaced by Bobby Firmino. And a lot of the you know, money that was then, you know, and while, you know, it could be argued, and I think at the end of the season we'll be in a much better position to, you know, state definitively, I think there'll be an argument that Liverpool may well have been the team of the decade if they win the league title in the last two or three years in having the wonderful success they've had. You know, in Europe, you know, in the great season last year when they nearly won the title, and if this year they break through, if you look at players like you know Marnier, Salah, Firmino, Fabinho, Virgil Van Dijk, the fullbacks, Allison, that's a fantastically talented team, and while you know Man City have won more titles, while Chelsea have probably been the more more consistent in terms of winning at the start of the decade, the middle and the end of it. What the team I've selected I think is the best way that you would tell the story. That you've had the, you know, fantastic leadership of, you know, company and Terry, you know, that harked back to the you know, golden age of the you know, warrior leader centre half. You have, you know, Kasper Michael and the miracle of Leicester City winning the, the title. You know, and with you know, Ingolo Kante in that you know brilliant signing from Cam, you've had you know Jan Vertonghen who shows you you know the changes that have you know tactically in the way how centre halves you were used. You know, you've had the double pivot. You've got Kante and Fernandinho, and how they've you know changed the way how we see defensive midfielders and how brilliant they have been at doing that. And then you've got you know just this wonderful breath of you know attacking talent Hazard, Torre, Silva, Suarez who have all you know really changed you know how English football is perceived and how English football works and you know nothing you know shows you that more than you know the success that Harry Kane's having and shows that you know the Premier League has played a key part in the renaissance of you know England at international level and that this team shows you the tactical evolution that has taken place in the last decade in English football. I think that's best encapsulated by, you know, last season's Europa League final being all English and last season's Champions League final being all English. It's been a, a, a wonderful decade in the Premier League's history. Thanks for listening.